Hello and welcome to today's Euractive debate supported by Kiersey. We're talking about healthcare in a complex system and asking how patients can navigate the transplant journey. Now we know that transplantation is one of the key successes that we have seen in the medical history of the entire profession. This is something that can save lives, have absolutely dramatic changes for individuals and for their families and caregivers as well. But we are limited by the supply of organs and the path to getting the right organs to the right people at the right time is obviously a complex one. In 2019, the EU passed its own set of rules that aims to do just that. Another area that we really need to consider is how to put the patient at the centre of this discussion. It might seem, as the Americans say, a no-brainer, but with so many different parts and stakeholders involved in the process, it's time to maybe reassess and have a look at what makes that work well and what we can do better going forward. So we are delighted today to have a great lineup of speakers for you. We will be discussing this over the next hour and a half. But remember, of course, you, the audience, can join in as well. We will be using the Slido tool for you to ask your questions, but I'll give you a little bit more information about that once we have heard from our speakers and an introduction from each of them. We are delighted to have joining us from the European Parliament, Tomislav Sokol, member of the European Parliament and the EPP coordinator in the Sant Committee. Anna Forsberg is a professor at Lund University. Daniel Gallego, who I have sitting next to me today, thank you very much, Daniel, is representative of the steering committee at the Patient Inclusion Initiatives at the European Society of Organ Transplantation. And last but not least, from Chiesi, Carmen Delana, who is the head of Global Medical Affairs. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Uh, I'll give the, the first place to our member of European Parliament to tell us, Tomislav, a little bit about your perspective on this and what is the, the feeling in the European Parliament and the discussions around this continuing need for better health care? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak uh, at this uh, event on this very important topic. Uh, so, as you said, I'm a member of European Parliament uh, from DPP, European People's Party from Croatia, and I was recently appointed as DPP coordinator in the, in the new subcommittee on health. So when we speak about health in general, I think uh, one thing that is different than it was uh, several years ago and, and traditional is that healthcare has now really become a European priority. That, that was not traditionally the case. Traditionally, healthcare was a marginal topic in the Brussels bubble, but this has changed, I think, primarily because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also because of the Euros Beating Cancer Plan, the initiative to adopt Euros Beating Cancer Plan. And now we have this uh, subcommittee, which I hope uh, eventually will become a permanent, fully-fledged legislative committee of the European Parliament on health. So healthcare, traditionally, as I said, was not very important, uh, and the, the main um, excuse for that, for the lack of action on European level, was uh, the, the division of competence. So we know that healthcare primarily, especially organization management and financing of healthcare system, is primarily a national competence. So we on the EU cannot unify, harmonize national healthcare systems. What we can do is to provide uh, help to member states and support national policies. Uh, however, as I said, since healthcare has become a much bigger issue in the in the European Union because of the pandemic primarily, now when we have the European Health Union, we have additional rules on cross-border health threats, on resilience for future crisis. Also, other areas of healthcare policies are also being taken into consideration. Of course, the two, two main uh, legislative files that we have now are the European Health Data Space, for which I'm the rapporteur, so the, the 
proposal for regulation on how to on how to improve uh, access to health data across European Union, both by medical professionals, but also for the purposes of research, innovation and policy making. And of course, the other part is the pharma legislation for which I'm the shadow rapporteur of the EPP, which deals on uh, the best ways how to facilitate uh, access to medicines on the, in, on the European Union market. So these are the most important things that we are dealing with now, but of course, organ transplant is something that is also very important. As I, uh, as I said, organ organization and management of healthcare systems is primarily national competence, but still EU has the competence to regulate uh, requirements for quality and safety of organs for transport on European level. And we have the directive from 2010, which regulates uh, the, the procedure and the, and the standards of quality of sa and safety for organ transplant that member states have to adopt and implement. So this is this is also a topic which is very which is very interesting, and I'm very open uh, to hear what are the suggestions that the policy that stakeholders might have in that we can that we can incorporate so that we can uh, improve on the legal framework that we have today. Thank you very much, Tomislav. I think you've uh, raised some points that I know we'll come back to, uh, namely what the changes that have been wrought by the pandemic are and on how we deal with that and whether we are in a completely new paradigm, as you say. Anna, let me turn to you and get your opening remarks related to this topic. Tell us about the work you're doing and how it intersects with what we're discussing today. Yes, thank you. And uh, I will start by thanking you for the invitation to be a part of this meeting. Uh, well, I have been a transplant nurse for uh, almost uh, 30 years, and I'm a professor in transplant care. And it means that I'm very much involved in the care before and after transplantation. And I have this vision uh, for the organ recipients uh, that we should focus on the person with an organ, not the organ in the person. Transplantation is very much medically oriented, and uh, we tend to forget the, uh, it's a huge opportunity to receive a transplant, I think, and it's a fantastic achievement uh, of the healthcare system, but we sometimes underestimate the challenge involved in being a human being receiving a transplanted organ. And so my mission is very much uh, organ recipient empowerment, which means that we need to provide um, tools in order to, uh, for organ recipients, for the relatives, but also for the healthcare professionals, in order to enable as uh, uh, as good process as possible and a, a good recovery as possible after transplantation. And I am a strong advocate for person-centered transplant care, which means what I early mentioned, that uh, we see the person behind the organ and not focus that much on on the organ. And I also think it's important to talk about equity and uh, that we want to achieve a just transplant care based on an ethical stand. Uh, everything about transplantation, uh, organ transplantation and organ donation is about ethics. It's a sort of ethical minefield or a ten field of tension, ethical tensions. Um, uh, and the persons who are working with this and also the person who are developing regulations needs to understand the fact that this is an area in medicine uh, which involves a very much uh, different ethical challenges and uh, standpoints. 
And what I sort of aim for, <laughs> quite ambitious, I guess, is a sort of paradigm shift all over Europe. Uh, I'm uh, very active within the organization European Society of Organ Transplantation, ESOT, and we will soon launch a project uh, which I'm about to lead, uh, and the project is labeled My Life, My Health. And one of the key um, aims about that project is to enable a just transplant care in Europe and to provide all these learning tools uh, in order to strengthen the, the transplant care and uh, the, the uh, opportunities for the transplant recipients, regardless of which country you are in. So my vision to conclude is that a life that is gained should also be lived, which means that we need to move from solely focusing on survival to uh, quality of life and a lifelong uh, process of adaptation uh, involved in being a transplant recipient. Thank you very much, Anna. Daniel, let me turn to you. Um, now, I'm sure you will pick up on many of those things in our conversation as you are in charge of patient inclusion. Uh, but perhaps tell us a little bit about the European Society of Organ Transplantation. Just give us a, a, a background for those particularly watching at home who may not be so familiar. Yeah, uh, th no, thank you very much for the invitation to Euroactive and for, of course, the KSC support. I think the, the, the strategic objective of, of healthcare system, ESOT, of course, is to increase the number of transplantation across Europe. The numbers are not only important, as Anna has said, uh, I think the important is the, to improve the quality of life, to save lives and improve the quality of life, focusing on the person and the people, not only on the graft. No? And, and to, to, to do that, uh, I think we need to uh, have some data about these transplantation figures. And the transplantation figure is that only a low percentage of people are on the waiting list for, for, for transplant. And this is because, of course, the organ shortage, but also for the uh, disparities in the access to the waiting list. And there are some delays in some countries, and we need to, to improve that. No? If you are a candidate, we need to ensure that every single patient are on the waiting list in less than three months. I think this is a, a, a good objective to, to, to remark, that every candidate should be on the waiting list so fast because it's cost-effective and it saves lives and money. No? And another important thing is we need to protect the living donors by law. I think with a social protection, uh, because we have seen some ca ca cases of uh, the people that get fired because, because the, the living donation, and we need to avoid the barriers to become a living donor to increase more the transplantation. Another important thing is to address, as Anna has uh, been uh, uh, saying, the humanistic burden of the transplant. Uh, the humanistic burden means uh, health-related quality of life, uh, daily life activities, life participation, you are able to follow up with your activities, and of course, health-related quality of life of caregivers and families, because sometimes they are adapting menus, medication, adherence, vacation, everything to the transplant. No? So caregivers and families are truly important. And another important thing is to, to work in a, in a collaborative way, uh, pharmaceutical industry, healthcare system, patient organizations, all together to improve protocols to improve strategies uh, 
nothing for us without us. No, this is our our uh, lima, our theme, and uh, I think uh, this is really important. No, and some examples of initiatives is to create tools, adapted materials for patients to understand health literacy. And I think yeah, we need to check uh, maybe uh, all together to review all the protocols together to to improve the transplantation uh, across Europe. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. You've whistle-stopped tour there through everything. Carmen, let me come to you, and thank you very much for being here. Tell us a bit about Kiesi. Give us your opening thoughts to get the conversation started. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And I'm truly honored and excited to be here today and be part of this esteemed panel. Um, I'm a physician and endocrinologist by training, and uh, I I've worked for several years uh, in the healthcare system, uh, then transitioned to, um, to the pharma company, and now I'm responsible of the medical affairs function at TAZ. TAZ is uh, an international biopharmaceutical company, a, a benefit corporation, and a certified big corp. And uh, this has a strong focus on research and development. I want to highlight this because in 2022, we reinvested about 21%, a little bit more than 21% of our total revenues in, uh, in research and development. And, and this makes you understand how the um, company identity is very much tied and linked to continuous effort to deliver innovation innovation that has an impact in the, in, the, in the patient's life and an impact in patient care and the evolution of patient care. So um, I think to do so, our commitment is to uh, adopt a fully patient-oriented approach, first of all, listening to patients, and then also engaging in a dialogue that is continued, not only you know, with people and uh, living with, with transplant and other conditions, but also with uh, all the stakeholders. So my experience from many years in the pharma sectors is really that meaningful discussion, uh, such as this one that we are having today and collaborative efforts um, are really fundamental to make us more equipped to face uh, the challenges in the healthcare system. So look forward to exchanging ideas and contributing to the discussions. And Jennifer, thank you. Thank you very much, Carmen. And while we talk about the discussion, let me now remind those tuning in online that they can get involved in this discussion. We're using a tool called Slido to help you join the debate. You can scan that QR code there that you see on your screen, or you can go to slido.com and insert the hashtag transplants. And there's no need to download anything. It's all very GDPR friendly, and you can put your questions to our panelists. I'll be receiving those over the next hour as we go through the conversation. So feel free to send your thoughts in, your comments, your questions to the panelists as we go through our discussion. Thomas Love, let me come back to you um, and pick up on some of the things you mentioned in your opening remarks uh, that I'm sure are quite close to your heart, namely the role of the EU in terms of healthcare. Uh, you know as well as I do that national competency is one of those phrases we hear over and over again in Brussels. But since the pandemic, there has been a move to get the EU more involved in health matters. So how do we use the EU and its great resources and what sort of EU institutional tools might be there to help improve the organ transplantation process. Is it about new laws? Is it about funding? Is it about assistance to R&D? What sort of things at EU level could help? 
Yes, I think all of the above. Of course, we have to see, and I'm open to suggestions whether the, the directive from 2010 in terms of standards of quality and safety can be can be improved. Of course, that directive is not very detailed in many respects, so, so probably there can be some more detailed rules on how to improve this. But then again, we have to see what is also doable, taking into account the member states' position the council, because member states, in most cases, do not want uh, you to to regulate some things in too much detail but of course we have to we have to see on, uh, what what can be done there when you speak of um, of uh, of funding uh, I, of course i would like to mention the horizon program that's the eu program for scientific research which which funds the big projects or uh, primarily in basic research healthcare has recently become one of the major priorities of uh, of the new horizon for the period of uh, for this uh, budgetary period that we are in now so definitely there will be much more funding available for healthcare uh, for healthcare related research, pro research projects as well and of course and, uh, and of course this also means uh, projects related to organ transplants now now much more funding is available uh, also from the from the eu level and also also, one thing that I would I would like to mention, which is very important, is the, are the European reference networks. So, European reference networks are networks networks of experts and centers of excellence across the EU, which uh, which uh, which coordinate and uh, and work together in, in in particular areas of healthcare. And they join expertise from different uh, parts of Europe uh, and also share best practices in order to improve healthcare provision. And one of these uh, European reference networks is the one on the transportation in children. So uh, organ transport uh, for children is very important. European collaboration, I believe, is crucial in that respect because in many, in, because if you have the lack of donors and lack of organs in general in Europe, I think this problem is even more pressing for children. Especially for children who are suffering for certain, and they are born with certain congenital defects, and here European collaboration and coordination can really be very helpful. So, so we have these European reference networks, which are based on the legally based on the directive on cross-border healthcare. Uh, we have the European reference networks on uh, on transportation in children, and this is something that can definitely be strengthened and improved in order to provide a better coordination, uh, also exchange of best practices, and to really and to really have much better uh, transport of organs, uh, much much better organized transplant of organs uh, uh, related to children. So I think these are some some concrete things where EU can be active and is already active, but of course we have to see if there there is also room for improvement. I think what is also very important in general that we speak about uh, healthcare provi provision but it also relates to organ transplant we have big differences across the EU big differences in terms of healthcare expertise in terms of healthcare equipment and infrastructure and here European Union through its cohesion policy funds but also through European uh, EU for health program the budgetary program can really do a lot in order to uh, to decrease these differences which exist so I think that uh, uh, that uh, even without legal unification of all the conditions and organization of healthcare systems by providing funding and setting standards on the organ transplant and facilitating coordination between different member states, we can really do a lot to improve uh, organization of organ transplant, transplant in general. Well, thank you. Um, Thomas, I, I see that uh, there's, there's, there's room for improvement there is what I'm hearing, um, but that we might be on at least the right track. I'd like to talk a little bit now about whether there is a gap between the patient communities and transplant communities. But I mean, 
there's so many stakeholders. So by that, it could be the, the health care givers, the, 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 the formal health care givers, it could be the pharmaceuticals, it could be the transport, all that infrastructure that's required. Anna, do you see that there is a gap? Uh, and where are those gaps? Or what's causing them? And how might we narrow them a little bit? Um, yes, well, uh, I think there is a gap. And um, first, I would like to echo what uh, Tomislav said about uh, uh, the funding of, of research and, and the Horizon um, funding, because what we need is uh, more healthcare, um, health science research. Um, uh, the, the, the basic science is, is often very much covered but uh, by funding, but we need more health science research in order to understand this gap, understand the human experience and understand the gap and how to, to narrow it. And I think the key gap is that we as healthcare professionals tend to uh, think that we sort of understand what is the problem and we um, pose uh, solu solutions, we suggest uh, solutions to the uh, patients that it's not necessarily um, adequate or does make sense to them because we lack the understanding of the inside perspective of what it's like to be uh, an organ recipient in this case or a patient in general. And there are several gaps uh, like, um, for example, uh, educational gaps. Um, and when we uh, provide patient education, we tend to do it, and when I say we, it's, it's us as healthcare professionals, we tend to provide this education based on our perspective and what we think is important for the, the uh, patient to know uh, or what we want to, to sort of um, uh, say or, 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 or emphasize, um, and not necessarily what is important for the patient. To, to learn about. So um, my strive, my clinical strive, and also um, uh, with my research, I have always strived to focus on the patient's perspective. What is important to you? What is the main concern for you? How do you deal with that? And how can we support the adaptation process? And another aspect is that we tend to talk about transplantation in terms of being healthy. You go from an end-stage disease to being completely healthy. And that gives uh, problematic expectations. I've been uh, teaching all day long. Uh, before this meeting, I've been teaching the heart transplant unit here at my hospital and the staff there. And we have talked a lot about the problems when we talk about this as the process of being healthy, because it's a chronic condition and there are a lot of side effects and symptoms involved and uh, when we um, uh, sort of give the wrong expectations we also tend to create a lot of disappointments and that's a huge gap that we need to discuss and I'm sure that Daniel has many things to say about this uh, but but my sort of, of, of uh, message is that we as healthcare professionals need to do more we need to shape up when it comes to um, understand the patient's perspective, and also we need to deliver things that make sense into their life situation. And we need to support adaptation and understand that this is a lifelong adaptation process towards a new normality. It never ends. 
uh, and and um, we need to be there because almost all transplant recipients I meet say this is a lonely journey, Anna. It is a lonely journey, and our mission as healthcare professionals is to make this journey a little less lonely. Well, thank you. Carmen, I want to come to you next because I want to ask you about this co-creation project, The Patient Diary. What is that and what is involved with that, please? Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I think The Patient Diary is an example of, of co-creation, recognizing the importance of patient insights and, and fostering the collaboration between patients and healthcare, and healthcare stakeholders. And uh, I want to go back uh, um, with what Professor Postbet said about, uh, you know, not taking for granted sometimes, for granted sometimes to know what is the patient's perspective. And this is also very important uh, for us as a pharmaceutical company, um, you know, continuous dialogue uh, and a continuous exchange, not only of knowledge, but also on perspective, uh, in a way, um, foster uh, empathy automatically and foster also more understanding uh, of the perspective of people living uh, with a different condition, including pe people with transplant. And uh, I think the patient diary is, uh, is an example also of integrating <laughs> the patient perspective uh, from the very beginning into the design uh, and in the development uh, of a solution uh, that breaks down barriers and ensure relevance and effectiveness. So, we co-created, uh, you know, interacting, uh, having the possibility of this interaction and this continuous dialogue between uh, scientific society, the patient association, and also the pharma industry, digital tool that is also downloadable and is a platform to meet the need of the patient design with the input uh, from the very beginning uh, of the patient. So uh, again, I think uh, the building long-term partnership is not just one instance, uh, you know, um, collaboration and discussion, but is uh, something that moves forward. So the patient diary is an example of an initial uh, collaboration that uh, um, translated in something tangible, a tool that is tangible to the patient community, but can then evolve in something more and more um, uh, in, uh, concrete in the sense of uh, uh, interaction with the, the, the various stakeholder. So uh, I think this gets uh, you know the various uh, the various stakeholders involved a little bit more closer for the overall benefit of the whole transplant world. Thank you very much, Carmen. Daniel, I, I saved you for last because I know you're also involved in, in working, uh, or at, the, at least the organisation is also involved in working on this project as well. But I'm interested to get your perspective. Uh, you were nodding along with some of what we were hearing. Where do you see gaps? How do you identify them? And how do you prioritise them? If there's, if there's several gaps, how do you say, well, this is where we need to focus? Yep. Uh, I, I need to highlight that Anna uh, has mentioned about the uh, the gaps about the education because the key to empower people is education. It's not only information. So we need a process because sometimes all the information is given to you at once and you are unable to, to process everything and you feel overwhelmed and the adherence to know the health literacy, you know. So I think we need to create these this education programs, no? adapted materials. And another important thing is you are young uh, and kids, uh, you, you will be candidate for two or three transplants in your life because transplant is not forever, unfortunately. So we need to, uh, to get in and out of maybe or dialysis or, or another th therapy. So uh, as, as Anna has mentioned, I think uh, transplants are the best 
replacement therapies, but at, you are not healthy. You are still with a chronic condition, so you need to accept. The acceptance of the disease is very important, and to manage and, and to, get, no, no, to get involved with your disease, with self-caring, self-management. And I think to prioritize the, the, the gaps is education, of course, and education for professionals and education for patients. No? Uh, uh, I, th I think we need, we need for, for sure, for, for everyone. And another uh, important thing is that the, the, to address this humanistic burden because the, the, the concept of quality of life has been designed by professionals. So they are not including self-esteem, uh, self uh, physical appearance, uh, maybe uh, sexual uh, dysfunction, these kind of things that really matters to us, no? or, you, or you are able to follow up with, with your activities. It doesn't matter if you are retired or not, just walking on the park. So we need to redesign together this, uh, this concept of quality of life, and of course, this education for, for to improve the adherence. We've seen, we've seen that after two or three years, maybe people uh, start to feel well, and they abandon the, the medication because, of, because they are feeling well. So this, this is unacceptable. No? We need to change these, these cases, and, and we need to improve uh, the, the lifespan for, for everyone. I mean, obviously, when you say this, it's, it's, it's absolutely obvious that you would want to take in the perspectives and gain the perspectives of the patients themselves in that. Um, I want to come to Anna, uh, because, of course, there's the medical professionals. Of course, there's this whole infrastructure we're talking about around it. There's the patients themselves. But there's also the non-professional caregivers who are very much in the mix alongside the patients. Do you think there's a, enough of an emphasis put on giving them the education, or is it... Um, a little bit after COVID-19, there's been a sort of a huge burden put on non-professional caregivers and they're just expected to get on with it. Well, um, I think we need to emphasize that role a bit more um, than what we do. We tend to sort of focus mostly on the patients. And um, I really want to compliment you on, on, on uh, addressing this uh, issue. And um, what I can see um, is that there are uh, different the, the relative or the spouse or the next of kin, whoever that is, has uh, a different process than the patient. And it's very important to acknowledge that. So, uh, for example, um, if you are a spouse, a wife or a husband, uh, you, uh, you have a completely different process uh, um, than the organ recipient. And for many organs, uh, it takes time. And, and, and one problem is fatigue after transplantation and I usually uh, today I, I mainly meet uh, heart or lung recipients um, but I've taken care of all kind of organ recipients and one a specific issue in the post transplant course is fatigue and still after six months you might be quite tired and then the spouse is already uh, uh, thinking that now you should be healthy now it should be over and the spouse and the next of kin or relative have uh, has uh, different expectations and they tend to be very much disappointed so i think we need to focus on that uh, to a much greater extent than what we are doing and i could just give a, a brief example uh, i got a, a very long email from a woman uh, she was she's married to a heart, heart recipient. He has received a heart twice at our center, and they had seen me on a YouTube film uh, after Christmas. So so they decided to write to me and approach me. And she had been she told me that she had been 
uh, completely disappointed for three years because she was stuck in this uh, expectation that her husband would be as he was before the transplantation. But when they saw my uh, lecture on YouTube, they realized that that, that will never happen. And she said to me, this is the first time in three years that I can breathe. Because now I realize that I have had completely wrong expectations. I love my husband. I want to become old with him. But I have been constantly disappointed on the fact that he is, he doesn't seem to be going back to the state he had before. And I think that says a lot. Uh, and and then I... I um, uh, showed them a model that I have developed in my research group, and I sent her this PowerPoint presentation, a picture, and th they put it on their the the door to the fridge in the kitchen, so they can see it every day. And she says, "This is me. This is about me, but it's also about my husband." I met both of them. I, I went to their home, and and they we had coffee for several hours, and and this was a huge relief for them, and probably also helped their marriage a lot. So, so I think you have a very strong point here that, that we need to focus not only on the patient but also uh, on the, the, the caregivers and specifically the spouses. And it's amazing something so simple as, as, a, as a PowerPoint yeah. on a fridge could be so effective and, and make a real difference in people's lives. But it is about getting that information to the right people at the right time. Carmen, I see you're agreeing as well with the importance of getting caregivers involved. And I'm struck as well, Daniel mentioned that uh, medication uh, continuation is, is possibly an issue for some uh, transplant uh, recipients. But presumably, uh, non-professional caregivers might help them with, with this sort of maybe problem of, of continuing medication. Carmen, tell me from your perspective uh, where we can maybe bring in these, these unofficial support networks a little bit more. Yeah, I think very relevant, uh, you know, discussion about caregivers and, uh, and the entire patient community. I think uh, I want to go, uh, go back to what Anna said about, uh, you know, the person behind the, behind the organ uh, and the fact that it's so important uh, that we focus on, uh, on uh, you know, transplant recipients as primary people and not just recipients of care. And we believe this uh, concept of care uh, must be beyond the medication and the delivering medication and uh, include the much more relevant and broader outcomes. I would say that uh, um, uh, the caregiver, the role of the caregiver, especially during the pandemic in general, has increased, uh, has amplified the amount and intensity of informal care in general in Europe. Uh, and it is and becoming very important also from the pharmaceutical perspective, pharmaceutical company perspective, to recognize the importance of embedding also the caregiver perspective to provide assistance and support, and including both patient and caregiver in their approaches, integral member of the community. So I'm very much agreeing with this. And, and also from our end, in case we systematically I want to include both perspectives and also in terms of support programs and dedicated training sessions and also information and awareness, and awareness campaign, uh, the inclusion of both patients and caregivers through various also digital channels become very important and crucial in terms of awareness and to effectively engage the stakeholder. I wanted to, to just mention another thing that I, I think is important when 
we talk about insights and listening. Uh, I think this is certainly the starting point, uh, something very relevant, important, but then, you know, it shouldn't be just one instance or especially from our perspective, it shouldn't be single instances, but more a continuous uh, progression of dialogue uh, uh, with the patient community and also with the other stakeholders, because uh, what we see is the evolution, as we are hearing uh, from, from the other panelists, the evolution in the lives of people living with, uh, with transplant and with other conditions. And so it's important that we continue this dialogue throughout and not just, uh, you know, focusing on single instances. Thank you, Carmen. A good point there. I see uh, not a question, but a comment from uh, one of the viewers, Colin White, is saying that it's a great question about caregivers. Organ failure is experienced not only by the patient, but by the entire household or family unit, and each of them has their own needs in relation to education and support. Thank you, Colin, for your comments, and I will remind our audience that they can keep sending those in. We are listening. Um, Daniel, let me just bring you in here before we come back to a little bit more EU-level uh, stuff. Uh, what's your, you know, your take on, on this kind of wider unit and how do we get more collaboration going? Yeah. No, I think now, is, uh, as a patient, we would like to have three things, of course. One is voice, and the second is choice, and the third one is co-creation and co-production. And I think this is the way to, to sit in the, in, the, in the table as an equal and to co-design and to co-produce from the beginning, not only reviewing guidelines or not only in advisory boards. No? And I think you now, and, and we are next to the uh, European Commission, I think uh, they are offering us the tools no, to be involved in a Horizon projects and EDU grants and educational grants and, and, and a lot of public funds for this and, and of course with the pharmaceutical industry to co-create these materials and, and I think we need to create protocols because uh, for, exa for example uh, immune suppressants have a lot of e side effects and to control in a long and, and middle term the side effects and, and the future. I think we need to co-create a protocol, patients and, and, and healthcare system together, and, and, and of course the pharmaceutical industry, to, to try to avoid the, the unpleasant symptoms or, or side effects about this, because uh, uh, if you are feeling well with the transplant, they, 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 you have a consultation one, once per year, and in a year happens a lot of things. No? So maybe these problems in a long term is not well approached, is, is, the approach is not, uh, is not quite uh, uh, good now, and we, we need to improve in a collaborative way because we, we, we know the, the, the symptoms, we know the effects, and we know how it's working in a long term, and maybe we can co uh, collaborate together. Well, thank you. Um, Tomislav, I'm coming back to you because we've worked our way around to it, but I do want to bring up the European health data space and what might be the benefits of that sort of a tool for the patients themselves and becoming empowered. And also then we'll move on to discussing a little bit about research and innovation and how, again, uh, tools like the European health data space might be useful. So give me your perspective on, on all of that. Take us from one step to the next, if you can be that bridge. Okay, thank you very much. So the whole idea of, of European health data space is that we use the and utilize the potential of the health data in Europe, which we are not using today. Because we have a lot of data, but it is fragmented. We don't have the same protocols. There is lack of interoperability, and this data cannot be used and exchanged not just between member states, but also within the same member states between different regions, or, the, or for instance, different hospitals within the same member state. So this is a problem. So the whole idea of European health data space is to facilitate both the primary use of data, 
that's the use of data by healthcare professionals, but also for the secondary use of data, primarily for research and innovation. So what does it mean? So when you speak about primary use of data, that means, for instance, that uh, if you have an organ transplant and then you go and then you go to study or live in another member state, you have to see a doctor, doctor there who will who has to treat you and control what is the situation with your organ, also with medication, etc. That they can see your whole um, that they will be able to see. Uh, in a digital form, your whole medical history, uh, your 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 entire health records, uh, whether you're allergic, uh, whether which medicines uh, you are already receiving, etc. And and this is definitely very important because it can really facilitate and make uh, healthcare provision faster, make diagnostics uh, faster, and uh, make healthcare provision much better and much more efficient. And I think, especially for people, uh, for people who are uh, who will be traveling from one member state to the other, who who go to study or work or live in another member state, this is of an utmost importance, especially if they already had an organ transplant. Uh, also, when you speak of secondary use of data, that's the sec that means the use of data for the purposes primarily of research innovation. It means that all, for instance, healthcare professionals like hospitals. All health or all data holders will have to uh, make catalogs of the data that they have, especially big data, big data sets, and uh, and this data will be able to be accessed by those who conduct research uh, through the so-called health data access bodies. So, for instance, if a university wants to do research on how to facilitate the protocols and procedures for, for instance, liver transplant, they will they will make a request to the national health data access body, and this health data access body will give them access to the, to large data sets which exist on big numbers of patients from a certain member states so that they can conduct research on that with, the, with the, of course with the final objective of uh, developing new medicines for uh, for uh, that will benefit the patients so that is so that is the whole idea of course when you speak about uh, secondary use of data for research uh, this data will only be accessed uh, in an anonymized or pseudonymized form. So this will not be data that can be traced back to the patient or that can be used to identify the patient. And what also I, I, am, I proposed as the rapporteur on the European health data space is also to introduce a so-called opt-out mechanism. So if, if some patients do not want to be part of this European health data space, if they do not want their data to be shared for the secondary, for the purpose of research innovation, for the secondary purpose, they will be able to opt out of the systems and say, no, we don't want what our data to be used. So I think that uh, that taking all of this into consideration, we, we can really bring a lot of benefits to the transport patients as well. Uh, what also I proposed in the report is that uh, all stakeholders are, are involved in the so-called governance mechanism, especially the health data space board that will be set up on European level, that will be in charge of developing recommendations and guidelines on how to implement the system. Uh, I propose that we include uh, in this EHDS board both uh, patient representatives, the healthcare professional representatives, but also representatives of the industry, so that all relevant stakeholders are involved so that they can really have a say on how this European health data space will work. So I believe that uh, that both, that both for, uh, for, uh, for primary use uh, of data for uh, transplant patients and also uh, patients who already had organ transplants and need a need to have aftercare after of uh, subsequent examinations, etc., this can really make make a big difference in terms of getting act, getting healthcare much faster and more effective than before. But but I believe that also this European health data scans can really uh, help us uh, create new medicines, new protocols, new medical treatments, also for organ transplants, which will in the end result in better outcomes for patients. 
Thank you very much, Thomas Lav. Now, we know this has been a big debate in Brussels for several months now, and I think it's important to acknowledge that there's been a lot of discussion around it. We're getting towards the point where we will have a hopefully a useful tool with the appropriate privacy safeguards in place. So it's been a long road. So congratulations to you in, in your work on it so far. Um, Anna, uh, let me turn to you. You wanted to make a comment, I think, on this subject. Yes, and I, I, I would like to actually echo both what Daniel said and what Tomislav said, because I think they, in the end, are linked. And, and Daniel talked about the side effects of the medication and how to deal with that. And, and one great concern among healthcare professionals, and probably also among the patients, is what we call non-adherence. And Daniel um, discussed that. Uh, the difficulties to take your medication sometimes and, and that you suffer from a lot of side effects. And and I think it's important to understand that it, perhaps it's not the key thing is not that you are not taking your medication is the reason why. And also the fact that we as humans are self-regulating, which means that if we believe that we are taking a medication that is causing a danger to us, uh, we tend to self-regulate ourselves uh, and remove that medication, which makes perfect sense, I believe. But it might cause a lot of difficulties if you are a transplant recipient. And when we talk about all the data that we are gathering, I think it's important to, to also understand that there is an ethical responsibility in how we handle the data. And one data gathering that I think we should emphasize is about um, the experience of side effects and how we can sort of get together in Europe to handle these and to 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 uh, create a framework how to deal with all the side effects and help the patients. So uh, I believe that the issue about side effects is very important, and I wanted to comment on that. But I also believe that one way forward. Uh, at a group level is to collect the data about this and to to analyze those data and to create uh, the, the knowledge from that into useful strategies to uh, uh, decrease the side effects, but also support the those concerned in their um, uh, strive for symptom management. Uh, because it's a quite lonely uh, strive at the moment, and I think that's the problem. Yes, Daniel. Yeah. No, I would like to add to, to, to Anna because uh, it's an ethical aspect, the responsibility to accept an organ. Nobody talks about this because, uh, but, but you need to be involved in your self-care and the adherence and the management because you are accepting uh, a gift no, it is, uh, and is the, uh, there is a shortage of this gift, and, and somehow you need to be careful with this. No, and the responsibility to accept an organ involves the responsibility to ask for an organ, especially in the living donors. No, and nobody cares about that, but this is a very ethical issue that we need to resolve. No, to increase living donation, and, and another important issue that we are facing. Uh, is that the, we are very committed to increase transplantation across Europe. The, we have politicals in pharmaceutical industry, patient organization, all together, and, and health assistance. But we are increasing the numbers every year, but the transplant unit teams are the same. So they have less time 
to check everything, to order consultation, so to, to monitorize this, this transplant. So we are facing this because in Spain, you, as you know, we are number one transplantation all over the world, but we, we are facing this, no? the, that the, we are growing the numbers every year, but the transplant unit themes are more or less the same. So uh, at, at the end, the, the quality of the service and the, and, uh, of the healthcare system is not the same. Well, I think this is a, a good point, Carmen, to bring you back in um, to talk a little bit about um, research and innovation. I know KIC has a commitment to that. I guess a lot of what you need is this data that we've been talking about as the sort of raw material for some of this research and innovation. Tell us a little bit how you do that and also how that sort of, uh, you know, the ideal outcome of maybe new innovative technologies or therapies might be used to uh, assist in, you know, pressed teams with more transplants taking place, but not enough new resources. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it's uh, extremely relevant that we, again, we continue to communicate and we continue this dialogue because at the end, the insights that we collect and the data that we collect sometimes for real world data are, are particularly useful to understand better um, you know what what happened uh, in the in the real world. I, I would say that uh, many times uh, there are knowledge gaps uh, that remain uh, in uh, in uh, the clinical practice uh, even after you know we develop a product and we go through the process of clinical development, uh, which is very uh, generally long and thorough, but that may miss some of the situation that we will find in the in the in the real world. So and here again, it comes very important uh, that. Uh, uh, the insights coming from healthcare providers and, uh, and from the patient community in informing uh, these knowledge gaps uh, are, uh, are continuously gathered. Uh, and uh, because in this way, we can, uh, we can really understand what could be done from, from our perspective in collaboration and in co-creation uh, with, uh, with the other stakeholders uh, in these regards. So continuous discussion in, this, uh, in these topics is, is very important. Another thing that I would like to highlight is the importance also to have uh, I would say incorporated the voice of patients, especially you know patient experts. We uh, we collaborate with them, for example, during the um, definition of a protocol for a clinical trial, and also this is uh, these are aspects that are incorporated and need to be incorporated at the beginning to understand if really uh, the study and the way we develop and the way we the protocol is in line also with the real needs of the patients. So I think that uh, there are several elements about the collection of data from the real world is, uh, is relevant and very important. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Carmen. Uh, Daniel, let me come back to you. Um, you mentioned living donors. We have uh, talked a lot about what we want to see as putting a patient-centric approach. We haven't really talked about the actual shortage of organs. I mean, how big a problem is this? Uh, we, you know, we, we hear headlines from day to day, but we don't know. What is, tell us a bit about the reality on the ground. I mean, Spain's a particularly great case, but it's not the same across the entire EU. No, of, uh, actually, Spain is, is a very good, is the number one in disease donor but we need to improve in a living donor because US and Netherlands are better than us in these numbers. And this is because we, we need to create the culture of donation in a, as a living donor. Is, is someone relative or someone close to you or even in an altruistic way, you, you can give a, a, a kidney or, or a, a liver, a, a, 
to, to everyone who needs it. So uh, we need to, to, to change this culture with education, with awareness, no? that every, every, everyone could be a patient someday and needs, uh, need a, a kidney or a liver. And I think the living donation, uh, we, we need to improve a lot. And this is the reality that we are facing. No? Uh, uh, usually our mothers or parents that uh, usually uh, uh, gives uh, or donor, donor the, the, the kidney or, or the liver, but uh, we need to, to, to change the cultural belief that are only relatives. No, no, we, maybe uh, we can uh, improve the numbers like that. And of course, with a social protection of the living donors. I think we need to protect by law, uh, just in case the, you have a problem with your company or your job and, and, and you can't recover after the surgery and uh, take some days, some weeks, uh, whatever you need. And, and maybe this could help to, to improve by law in a European zone or a, in even in each region. Uh, uh, just a, like a maternity, a maternity leave, more or less like that, uh, permission uh, to, to recover after the surgery for a, for a living donation. Uh, these are great ideas, I have to say. I mean, and all, as you say, could contribute towards a culture. Thomas Love, let me bring you in there. I mean, can we create, if you like, a European donation culture, we, be it deceased donors or living donors? Yes, it is something which is not very, very easy to do because, again, there are different national rules, for instance, on the question of uh, consent, whether it's an opt-in or opt-out system, etc. So this is uh, this is a national national prerogative, uh, and this is not something that the member states would like to change because, you know, if you want to make European Union legislation, it's not enough that uh, the Commission proposes and the Parliament supports it, but also the Council needs to find an agreement. And in the Council, you have member states who are usually not really willing to hand over too much power on healthcare to the European Union, unless they have to, for instance, when there is a public health emergency, etc. So it won't be easy, but what, what we can do is, I think, that uh, we can invest into raising awareness, into raising, into, into raising, in providing enough information on the importance of uh, organ uh, transplants, organ donation, of all the benefits that, that it brings. And, and by doing this, by having this kind of a promotional actions and, and investments into education and training as well, but not just for, for patients and overall population, but also for healthcare professionals, when, because they are the, the first point of contact for, contact for patients. And it's also important that they can provide information in the right way to the patients and to, the, to all the people about the benefits of, of organ donation. So I think that, uh, that, uh, that we cannot harmonize this and set some legal requirements and unify this legally, but by providing incentives and by investing into raising awareness and, and working with all the stakeholders, you can do a lot more than it's doing now in order to, to kind of try to contribute to creation of this kind of, uh, uh, of European culture on organ donation. Thank you. Let's turn a little bit more now to the global context. Uh, you know, we don't operate here in a vacuum in the EU, although sometimes it feels like we do. Um, I'd like to think a little bit more broadly in, in terms of sharing best practices, forming you know, collaborations or partnerships, whatever they may be. Um, I have a question, Anna, not specifically to answer this, but let me, me raise this question that Babakar Ndaye has raised, um, asking what are the possibilities of establishing technical and service partnerships with uh, local and national African private sector companies, for example. How do you see, Anna, any international linkages and, and do you see there are benefits in, in going outside the EU to talk about this issue? 
Well, I think it's important to to collaborate all over the world. I, I've been involved in an initiative uh, which stems from Turkey, actually, the International Transplant Organization, where they, um, for example, educated uh, um, less advantaged countries, like from Africa, uh, in transplantation and supporting them to start transplant programs. So uh, we, the countries, the European countries that are are perhaps more advantages in terms of of more resources could could reach out and um, uh, in order to support equity and diversity and inclusion uh, um, and uh, we could collaborate with with many things like for example education. So I think that's a good thing. And also, if if there is difficulties to to establish a firm organization when it comes to Denise, disease donation, uh, we could support living donation in countries um, that have difficulties um, because that will make a change, even if it is a small change. Thank you. Um, Carmen, I'd like to get your perspective building on that, on how we share best practices um, around the globe also and as around Europe. Um, what are, the, are there any specific mechanisms that you see or would like to see or, or particular ways of, of partnerships that work? Yeah, I think uh, um, I agree completely that sharing practices is a very important uh, aspect. I think that I, I, I worked for many years in the United States and I living in the United States and uh, you know I think I've seen also in other areas uh, um, a lot of cross uh, cross fertilization of initiatives uh, that can come from different stakeholders uh, and and I think uh, you know the, the the most important point here is uh, of course the practices may be different in different countries and around the globe but uh, you know starting from the commonalities sometimes may lead to initiatives that can have, you know, impact at the global level. So we can, you know, we can share, for example, practices that link, you know, heterogeneity of, of clinical practice in, in, in several contexts that can be, you know, helpful in understanding, you know, also in other countries, the way things are, are done. And, and this dialogue is, is, is always relevant. So from my perspective, um, in, in terms of pharmace a pharmaceutical company that is globally um, present uh, in, many, in many countries around the globe, uh, this interaction also involving the scientific societies uh, of different countries uh, and the healthcare providers' insights uh, from different perspectives may lead to important initiatives uh, and the sharing of best practice. And also, it's always, uh, I would say, that generally very well uh, received in terms of understanding what also the others are doing and how we can advance patient care in this direction. So definitely agree with Anna on this. Thank you. Um, Daniel, we talked about best practices. Let me ask you a perhaps provocative question about worst practices. Um, how big a problem is black markets um, and an unregulated organ donation? Um, is it a problem in Europe? Uh, we, we often think we are uh, not at risk of any of things like this. Is it a problem globally? Tell me a little bit, put it in the reality of the context. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's a, it's a real problem because it's, it's an ethical issue, of course. And, and of course, uh, the, is, we are have only estimations. Uh, luckily, in Europe, it's 10% uh, or less. 
and but when we don't really know about the exact numbers mm. but I, I I'm afraid in, in the rest of the world the numbers are high because of course the, the need and and you know the demand and and the the money man it takes the uh, a solution uh, it could be a, a problem but I think the, we need regula regulation of course uh, as you know in in some models you need to go to to the court you need to go to to review by two two professionals and and to establish that there is not uh, money behind any anything and there is not not interest of anything no uh, in the relationship between the, the donation uh, it doesn't matter if you are deceased or living donor so I think it's important uh, to regulate uh, well and to exchange best practice to avoid this no mm -hmm. but uh, we have seen examples even to cross transplants in, in between countries but uh, we need data and we need the, that with Thomas has mentioned the interoperability of the database to this no to, to find the best solution the best compatible uh, person for each organ and we need to to, to be connected uh, at all no and and of course uh, the best practice as always uh, we, the Spanish model we are always sharing uh, with the rest of the of the European Union just to uh, to improve the the transplantation and the rest of the countries and the Spanish model is always trying to find solutions to uh, achieve more and more every year so I think this is the best practice not the uh, uh, transplantation in Spain is like a symphonic orchestra that someone is coordinating uh, surgeons urology and 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 the rest of the professionals of course nephrologists and and uh, you, you you need to to coordinate this with a best practice and and of course to learn every every year you learn to improve for the rest of the of the uh, of the years Anna, uh, Daniel there mentioned speed and, and of course the need for the correct checks and balances is very important. But I understand that one strong argument for faster transplants is that it has better outcomes. It costs the health service less. Um, we're talking about making patients the centre of it, but sometimes you have to make uh, a monetary case to the health service providers or to those when resources are limited. We have a, a cost of living crisis across Europe at the moment. How? How do you work those sorts of considerations into discussions? Well, I mean, transplantation is cost effective. So, so, and, and when uh, there have been numerous calculations, for example, uh, 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 regarding the benefits of kidney transplantation compared to dialysis. So it's very cost effective and I think it's important and I think it's, you know, okay to talk about that. But, but Daniel is, is emphasizing a lot of important things. And, and if we look at the Spanish model, with this, which is the role model for, for the whole world, what is significant for that model? It's the commitment. So I, I want to, to just say some words about commitment because in the end, commitment leads to cost effectiveness. And if we see, I had the opportunity to visit Barcelona last year, and they have these, um, they have three sort of, um, key concepts in, in, in when they are working and it's gratitude, it's generosity and it's confidence. And that sort of significant is significant for the whole Spanish model. And I think we need to raise the the, the um, raise the commitment all over the transplant service in both in Europe and, and worldwide. Because if every every country and every transplant organization were as committed as the Sp you are in the Spanish model. We would see a huge change, and that would also be cost effective. So it's a matter, commitment is 
in, in all parts of the transplant and donation process is a matter of cost effectiveness because you waste money uh, and resources if you are not committed. And transplantation is a thing that happens seldom, like donation, but it's of huge importance. So, so if we link commitment, generosity, pride, um, uh, and, and confidence into the discussion of the outcomes and the cost-effectiveness part, we will move uh, forward. We will we will reach further than we are doing today. Well, thank you. I think we have time for one last question from the audience before we go for a final round of wrap-up. Daniel, I'll put it to you, but if any of our other panellists want to answer as well, feel free. Um, Katerina Bernini-Rehm is asking, what about risks and risk-based assessments? Will they help with building trust? Yeah, you know, uh, trust and reputation is something that is based on confidence, as, as Anna has mentioned. And it is, is, it is difficult to, to, to tackle no, this, this issue. And I think uh, we need time and to, to, to establish how we can improve this topic, because uh, it, it is almost impossible to say, hey, this is going to be, but, but as Anna ha has mentioned, is, it's, it's a question of determination and willingness, and of course, solidarity, generosity, and, and, and every, everyone is on the same page, uh, pushing to the same direction. No? And I think uh, if the professional patients and all the organizations are on the same page, we will uh, achieve more, and, and of course, uh, uh, nobody can give you 100% of nothing, no? nothing in life is like that, but I think uh, it's, uh, it's the best uh, practice that, uh, that we, we could have, no? uh, that to, uh, to, to be on the same page and to have a consensus about this. Well, thank you. Um, we've got just about 10 minutes left, so I think I'll give everyone an opportunity to maybe make some closing remarks and draw together maybe what have been the big threads for you, and feel free. To, to comment on what you've heard from each other as well as, as your own thoughts. Tomislav, I'll give you the floor first. Um, we've had an interesting discussion. What are your big takeaways? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, uh, we heard a lot about a very interesting topic. Uh, of course, uh, I'm looking uh, at it from the European Union point of view, where, as I said, our possibilities to act are limited, but still I think we can do a lot in investing more into research especially into, into, into research projects uh, from, from, from Horizon. Also, we can, we can do a lot in terms of uh, uh, facilitating and raising awareness on the, on the importance of organ donation. And of course, what is also very interesting is strengthening the European collaboration and cooperation, which for organ donation is of extreme importance. So not one thing, one dimension is, of course, development, uh, further development of European reference networks as this kind of a best framework where we can exchange information and share best practices to provide best possible healthcare, but also the creation of European health data space, which can make it possible to actually have joint uh, common registers of uh, health donors and, and organs, which we can really make it possible that we optimize uh, the use of organs to the best possible extent and that the, the donors really get to those patients who need them the most. Of course, uh, I, will, I will continue to act within my uh, 
uh, within my function as the uh, coordinator of the European People's Party in the new subcommittee on health and to raise awareness of this issue. And of course, I hope that we will continue to work uh, much stronger in the area of healthcare on the EU level uh, than we did before. Because I think with this joint uh, collaboration and cooperation on the EU level, we can do much more and we can really make, uh, make it possible that the organs get to those patients who need them the most as fast as possible. Thank you very much, Tomislav. Indeed, the COVID pandemic has been a horrible experience for us, but if something good can come out of it, then let's at least grasp that low-hanging fruit. Anna, turning to you, um, final thoughts that you want us to take away from our discussion today? Yeah, well, I, I want to conclude where I began uh, by saying that a life that is gained should also be lived. And it means that we need to have a strong collaboration with the patients to understand what is important to them. Uh, I believe in rapid research dissemination. We know a lot about what is important for the organ recipients, uh, but we need to disseminate that knowledge all around Europe and collaborate on best, best practice. And my final take home is that when we uh, collaborate and we learn from each other, uh, um, instead of competing, I think we will um, uh, move forward much more rapidly. And um, the best thing of all is uh, to uh, continue this strong partnership that we have started within ESOT, with the, the um, uh, alliance between professionals and patients. I think that is one of the best things that we have achieved so far. And I'm looking forward to continue that work. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for joining us today and giving us your insight. Carmen, uh, turning to you, uh, a wrap up from the Chiesi angle. Uh, we covered a lot today, but if you want to highlight anything in particular uh, as a final thought. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think uh, we started by saying that active listening is uh, is a key aspect, uh, but it's not enough. So we need uh, to foster this collaboration from different stakeholders uh, around the patient community. We need to, first of all, continue the dialogue. So it's not just single instances, but having long-term discussion. And, and uh, it's only in this way we can really build partnership. And, uh, and that we can really address uh, needs uh, that uh, are relevant uh, and the impact uh, potentially positive uh, the, the lives of, of people and uh, people living with transplant. I think that uh, I want to go back in the final remarks on the patient diary as an example of co-creation because the dialogue also in the long-term partnership that we had with ESOT and the ETPO Alliance um, beyond delivering a co-created and tangible tool in this regard also put the basis and paved the way to further discussion and further collaboration. And I think, you know, the whole transplant world really can benefit from having this across-stakeholder discussion and collaborative effort. So thank you again for having me today. Thank you, Carmen. And thank you, of course, to Chiesi for raising this particularly important topic today. Uh, Daniel, uh, the poison chalice of going last falls to you. Um, there's a lot to agree with. Um, I'm not asking you to disagree at this late stage in the discussion, but just give us your final thoughts and, and any strands we can draw together as, as a final takeaway. Yeah, of course, everything is uh, about innovation, best practice, a collaborative framework. Everything is, of course, in the EU level, more, more funding. But answering the question about 
how to improve the, the transplant journey, uh, the transplant uh, journey for people. I think uh, we need to focus more on how the life is going on with a transplant instead of how well is going the organ of, of, the, of the transplant. No? Because beyond the clinical outcomes and beyond the economic outcomes, we need to, to uh, focus on the, this humanistic uh, approach. And I think this is the key, no? because we are living in a real world, no? with uh, uh, working or not, and, but with daily life activities, with life participation, and, and this is what really matters to us. No? And we, we need to focus on that. And how well are you living with a transplant no? in your life, not only in the, in the healthcare system environment? We say healthcare, after all, not disease care. So it's about, about the individual. Thank you all very much indeed for this great discussion today. Thank you as well to the audience for your questions. And I know there's a, a broader conversation to be had, but we can certainly continue that online. You can use the hashtag EA Debates to continue this particular discussion. And also do follow EA Health EU online on various social media. And keep an eye on your active. We will have many more discussions on this and related issues in the coming weeks and months. But that's it for now. Have a great evening.